Okay, let's just bow our hearts one more time as we come before God's word. Father, as we come to your word this morning, Lord, we want to do so humbly, not thinking we have all the answers, Lord, not thinking we've got it all right, but Lord, recognizing that we still have so much to learn. Lord, we still have so much growing to do in knowledge and in grace. And Lord, we recognize that we need you to help us to do that. We need your spirit to stir us, to work in our hearts, to help us to understand your word. And so, Father, as we turn to this portion this morning, Lord, just give us understanding and insight. Speak to us, Lord, of Lord, what you're doing with us right now, Lord, where you're taking us. And Lord, may we not leave here this morning, Lord, the same as we've come in. So, Father, speak to us now, we pray, Lord, take my words, and Lord, may I just be a vessel for you to, to speak to our hearts, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I mentioned last week that this is one of the most uh, wonderful portions of Scripture, certainly for me personally. It's just always been just fascinating. Um, and we see this character, Elijah, just step onto the pages of history. And as we said last week, we know very little about Elijah, um, but clearly he's a man of God. He's not afraid, he's not ashamed of God, he's not ashamed of his heritage, not ashamed of the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Clearly he's very frustrated as he looks at his nation and he sees what's happening, as he sees these successive kings coming and just destroying We said last week that Elijah prays this most audacious prayer to ask God to stop the rain and the dew for three and a half years. It really is quite a a bold prayer that he prays. And we see that it's on the back of his frustration looking at the nation some 60 years after the dividing of the nation. And a number of kings now, we've got the eighth king after the time of Solomon. In the northern kingdom, so much has been changing and there's not been a good king amongst them. In fact, we've seen they've gone from bad to worse. And it's almost just, you could be forgiven for thinking it was just impatience or frustration on Elijah's part that causes him to go barging into Ahab's palace and make this statement and go out thinking, oops, what have I just done there? But this wasn't a a rash act on Elijah's part. But let me ask you the question, how much faith did it require? How much faith did that require for Elijah to go walking in to the king of the nation? A king who already had a a reputation for being a little bit harsh. And to make this bold statement saying, there's not going to be any rain. Effectively, your crops are going to die. In fact, there's going to be a famine on the land. It's going to devastate the land for the next three and a half years. How much faith did Elijah have to have to do that? Well, we've seen the scripture, let's just read it again. Elijah was a man of like passions with us. Scripture says that Elijah is just like you are. That you are just like Elijah. We're told that he did pray fervently. But surely there's times we've prayed, prayed fervently as well. But his prayer that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years, probably something bigger then we've probably ever been bold enough or dared to pray. And then he prays again and it rains. But the point is, the Bible tells us God wants you to know that you are just like Elijah. As you see here this morning, if you believe in God, he wasn't some superman, some super spiritual giant that we could never attain to that kind of standard. So 
How much faith did Elijah have? And how do we get there? Let's look at what Matthew 17, 20 tells us. Jesus speaking. He says, Verily I say unto you, that if you have faith, just as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Jesus says, to do these incredible things, you don't need a lot of faith. So, Elijah didn't necessarily have a huge amount of faith. What is faith? A song I remember when I was growing up by a Christian artist had a line in the the lyrics. It said, um, R-I-S-K spells faith. And it was just, you know, I understand the, the, the idea behind it. But is that right? Is faith a risk? Is it a gamble? Is he trying to ask God to do something that we're not sure whether he might do or would want to do? Is faith just hoping that something might happen? Is it believing with all your heart that it will happen? And surely, you know, it's just believing without doubting, isn't it? Isn't that what James tells us about asking for wisdom that we should ask and not doubt? Well, is that faith? You see, isn't all that just positive confession? This idea that grabbed hold of the church some years ago, that you know, if we just believe something hard enough, then it will happen. Is that what Elijah did? Just believe something, really wanted it to happen. There's a verse in Proverbs that's often misquoted, Proverbs 23, verse 7. It says, for as a man, or as he thinks in his heart, so is he. And, of course, uh, the positive confession, people jump on this and say, there you go. It's as you think in your heart, so are you. If you think you're going to be richer, then you'll be rich. If you think you're going to do this or that, then just believe it in your heart and it will be the case. Of course, it's totally misquoted. The verses actually say the person may not be, or may not be what they appear to be on the surface. That it's actually their heart that really tells what character they are. The true nature of a person. That's what the verse is saying. It's nothing to do with making things come to pass. Just taken out of context, but sometimes you might stumble across that one. So what is faith? Well, Hebrews 11 tells us that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, straight away from that, you should be able to realize that faith isn't wishful thinking. Because it's based upon substance, something that could be substantiated. Faith is evidence, based on evidence. You see, a lot of people think of us as Christians and they think we have this blind faith. The gentleman I was speaking to this morning, that was his view of Christians. That it's okay, you can believe it, that's fine, but it's just a blind faith. There's nothing to it. But is that the case? You know, all through scripture, we find that God gives us evidence. You know, after Jesus has risen from the dead, he appears to the disciples in the upper room. And Thomas, of course, isn't there the first week. A week later, they're there again, and this time Thomas is there. Does Jesus just say to Thomas, just take it on faith? No, Jesus actually says to Thomas to reach out, to put his finger into the nail prints in his hand. Empirical evidence, something that can be verified. You know, at the beginning of the book of Acts, we're told that Jesus appeared many times after his resurrection. And we're told there, the phrase we have is, but many infallible proofs. See, the faith of the disciples, 
the faith of the disciples is just not a blind, I hope this is true. It was based upon things they could substantiate. It was based upon the evidence. You see, the thing we need to realise is that faith is not faith in faith. And that's where a lot of the, the church has gone off on this tangent. Just thinking that if we have faith in faith, then that will do it. We just need to have more faith, and if we have enough faith, then what we want will happen. It's not how much you want or believe something. It's faith in God. That's it. That's why you don't need to have a huge amount of faith, because it's not the quantity of faith you have, it's the quality of your God. And if you have a little bit of faith in an all-powerful God... Well, that's enough. And that was the point that Jesus was making. That if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, but that faith is in God, well, then you can move mountains. You see, it's faith in God's character. You know, it's the confident assurance that God is the same yesterday, today, forever. The God that was with Daniel, the God that was with David and Gideon and Joshua and all these characters we read of in scripture is the same God that is there for you today. It's the knowledge that God is faithful and delights in keeping his promises. Now the Lord graciously allowed us to start this year by looking for three weeks at the promises of God. Just to remind ourselves about some of these promises that God has given us in his word. So we can have faith in those promises because of the one who promises those things. See, that's what faith is about. It's the object of our faith that's really important. It's the one in whom we have faith. And by the way, no one can actually have faith in God if they don't know him. Now, you can't trust somebody if you don't know that person. But once you come to know that person, well, you gradually get to that place that if they're trustworthy, you know you can trust them. Well, it's the same with God. When we get to know God, we know that God is trustworthy. We know that God will keep his promises. And it's on that, it's on that basis that Elijah prays. You see, Elijah prays on the basis that God would be true to his word. So it wasn't a, a huge step of faith for Elijah to pray this. It was simply believing in God. Believing that God is who he is. And that he would do what he says. Notice what we read in Mark's gospel. Same verse that we read in Matthew, but Mark's gospel we read just a verse earlier. Jesus answering said unto them, have faith in God. That's where our faith must be. And then, for verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he said shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he says. Now, the point is, as it says in verse 22, that our faith must be in God. Not in what we would like to happen. Not faith in faith, but faith in God. So, if we are putting our faith in that which God has revealed in his word already, we can be absolutely rock solid confident. See, regardless of the enormity of the request, if we ask because God is God and based upon the promises of God, well then he has to hear us because he's committed himself to hear us if we ask in faith. Dave Hunt, wonderful teacher, author, 
Some of us had the opportunity to meet him, wonderful man of God. He's now gone home to be with the Lord. But in one of his books, he made this comment. He said, either we trust in the power of a firmly held belief, activating some mysterious psychic power of the mind, or else we trust in God and his infinite power, which is obviously demonstrated everywhere in the universe. Only a fool would choose the power of the mind over the power of God. True faith looks to God to do that which neither one's mind, conscious or unconscious, nor talents, nor efforts could accomplish. I really like that because you think of Elijah. You see, it wasn't based upon Elijah's talents, his efforts, anything he could do. It was just based upon his confidence in God. And as we've seen, let's look again, Deuteronomy 11. Elijah had this confidence because God had already said in his word, Deuteronomy 11, verse 16. Take heed to yourselves, that your heart be not deceived, and you turn not aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then God gives the responses, if that happens, what will then happen to you? Elijah knows this. He knows God's words. He knows this is what God has promised. And verse 17 tells us, And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shuts up the heaven, and there be no rain, and that the land yield not have fruit. Unless you perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. Elijah knew that God had already said that if you turn aside to other gods, if you turn aside and worship idols, I'm going to stop the rain. This wasn't Elijah's kind of, I know what we can do here. I've got a cunning plan. No, this was Elijah going to God's word and saying, this is what God has said. Okay, look, God, you've said this. Therefore, he didn't need a lot of faith. He just needed a big God. So he goes to God. And he, yes, he does pray fervently. Yes, we see that. And then God obviously stirs him. And at the right time, he goes and stands before Elijah. You see, God had said that if the people turned away and worshipped false gods, his wrath, in his wrath, he would withhold the rain. Elijah simply holds God to account. Effectively, it's God, you've promised... So now you have to do according to your word. See, doesn't that help to put faith in context? See, it's not that Elijah was really, really wishing this would happen. He just went to God. It's God's problem, not my problem. So in order to pray in faith effectively, we must be diligent students of his word. You see, it's very difficult to pray at all if you don't know God's word. I've said before, I was at a a spring harvest event many, many years ago now. And the person, well-meaning, no doubt, that was leading the session, just said, all break into little groups and I want you to pray. Great, no problem with that. He said, I want you to pray for world peace. (laughs) Like a beauty pageant. And... The people that were with me, we just looked at each other and we just shook our heads. And we said, well, let's just, just pray. And we prayed for God's will to be done. Because we know that the Bible says that there will not be peace in this world until the Prince of Peace comes and establishes throne. There's lots of things we can pray about according to God's word. But we can't pray things that are not in accord to God's word. So we need to be students of God's word if we are to pray. Jesus gives us a wonderful model. Both uh, Matthew, Luke, Mark record it for us. We refer to it as the Lord's Prayer. And so often we kind of 
do exactly what Jesus said we shouldn't do and just repeat it, vain repetition. But it's a fantastic model for us as a basis of how we should pray. Jesus himself uses that as the basis of his prayer in John 15, 16 and particularly in John 17. So prayer should come out of our understanding of what God has revealed. Again, let's just look at this verse in James. Elijah was a man of like passions with us. And he prayed fervently that it may not rain, and rain not on the earth for three years and six months. You see, Elijah's confidence, as we've stated already, was in God and in God's word. That's why he was able to pray as he did. Because sometimes we pray, we pray once and we don't maybe receive the response or the answer we were expecting or wanted, and maybe then we give up. But you know, if you're praying in accord with God's word, well then you keep praying. Keep, keep praying, just go on and on. Notice what the opening verse of the chapter we looked at last time said again. Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Now we have it translated my word, but it's not according to Elijah's word. It's according to God's word. The word that we have there in the Hebrew is translated in various ways elsewhere. Um, according to the speech, according to the utterance that I've given, the saying. And really, I think that's the, the import of what this is, is meaning here. It's not Elijah's word. It's not something that Elijah has brought. It's an utterance that he's giving with the authority of God's word. And that's why he can say, as I stand, there shall, be, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word, according to my utterance. Because I speak what I speak on the basis of God's word. What's the condition though for this second part? Because we read then in James, the second part of that little small passage that talks of Elijah, verse 18 says, And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. So what was the condition of God granting that request? So clearly we've got it in scripture that Elijah could pray in faith, knowing that God would keep his word to pray that it wasn't going to rain, that God has said he would do that. But to pray that that rain would come. Well, that's what we're going to look at as we go into this chapter. So chapter 18, verse 1. It came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, go show thyself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. So God now makes his promise to send rain. Now back in Deuteronomy, chapter 30, verses 9 and 10, we read there, And the Lord thy God will make thee plenteous in every work of thy hand, in the fruit of thy body, in the fruit of thy cattle, in the fruit of thy land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over thee for good, as he rejoiced over thy fathers. And notice this, verse 10, If thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in this book of the law and if thou turn unto the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul so Elijah knew that God had promised that even if people would go astray and the the passage in Deuteronomy really from 28 up to pretty much the end of Deuteronomy we have these blessings and curses laid out for us and God has said that even if and when actually you do these things if you come back to me if you turn again 
to the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, then blessing will follow. So God now says to Elijah that I want you to pray, or I want you now to go and tell Ahab the rain is coming. This drought is going to be over. But Elijah, I believe, knew in his heart that that required something. That required, for God to be consistent and true to his word, that required the people's hearts to be turned back to him. Because that's what God had already said, that he would bring that blessing if the people would turn back to the Lord their God. And that's exactly what we then see in the rest of this chapter. And I believe Elijah knew exactly what he had to do. We read, Elijah went to show himself unto Ahab, and there was a sore famine in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, which was the governor of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, for it was so that when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. So we just read of this wonderful act of Obadiah, even though he's working for this, effectively a pagan king, still a Jew, but led the nation into idolatry, Obadiah stayed true to God and tried to stand up for the things of God. Of course, he's in a very compromised position, not a good position to be in, but somehow he's managed to get these hundred prophets and he said 50 in one cave, 50 in another cave, and even in the midst of this time of famine, brought them bread and water. You know, the only place he could have done that from was by being a servant to the king himself. Probably nowhere else in the land would have been able to get enough food, enough water to go and feed these people. But God had engineered the circumstances to put him into a day job that gave him this opportunity. You know, sometimes we look at our lives, our careers, our, our day routines, whatever they are, and sometimes we wonder why God allows them or why God would put us through sometimes the things we have to go through. And I'm sure that Obadiah at times thought, Lord, why am I serving this man? Why am I here serving a king who has no regard for you whatsoever? And suddenly God reveals to him that there's a job to do while he's there. And God uses this individual to feed and to water a hundred prophets, servants of God. Only in that position at this time, could he have been able to do that, to actually get hold of enough water and enough food? Ahab said unto Obadiah, Go into the land, unto all the fountains of water, unto the brooks. Peradventure we may find grass to save the horses and mules alive, that we lose not all the beasts. That shows the caring heart of the king, doesn't it? Don't worry about the people, let them die. But do like my horses, let's see if we can find some water for them. That's what he's saying. Just simply, let's try and save the animals. <laughs> Reminiscent of Solomon, of course, who multiplied to himself horses and so on, which is something that the kings, according to Deuteronomy, weren't to do. They weren't to be like the kings of the nations around them. Their strength was not to be in horses, but in the Lord. David makes that comment that some trust in horses and chariots, but our hope is in the Lord our God. So they divide the land between them to pass throughout it. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. And as Obadiah was in the way, behold, Elijah met him, and he knew him. Probably knew him instantly, because we was told already that Elijah was a hairy man. And he sees this individual looking a little bit unkempt, looking like he needs a bit of a wash and a shave. That's got to be Elijah. And so Obadiah says, he fell on his face and said, Art thou my lord Elijah? Just out of politeness. And he said unto him, I am. Go tell thy lord, behold, Elijah is here. <laughs> And he said, uh, this is now Obadiah responding, what have I sinned? 
<laughs> that they would deliver thy servant into the hand of Ahab to slay me? It's just trying to get the point across to Elijah. Uh, you've been away for three and a half years. There's a lot that's happened in that time. And, uh, well, as the Lord thy God lives, there is no nation nor kingdom whether my Lord, Ahab, has not sent to seek thee. And when they said he's not here, he took an oath of the kingdom and nation that they found thee not. Ahab was intent on finding Elijah. And he's getting people to say, if they, they said no, he's not here, to sign a, a piece of paper saying no, he's, he's not here effectively. And now you're asking me? Go, go and tell the king, behold, Elijah is here. And of course his concern is this. He says, and it shall come to pass as soon as I'm gone from thee that the spirit of the Lord shall carry thee whither I know not. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find thee, he shall slay me. But I, thy servant, fear the Lord from my youth. And now he's going to give a little bit of his resume and let Elijah know that, you know, what you're asking me to do is not fair. Honestly, I've been trying to be a good person. This is what I've done. Was it not told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now thou sayest, go, tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he shall slay me. So a little bit concerned. You know, that's very much like a lot of us. We're in situations. We've seen God do some wonderful things, and then we're in another position, and we start to doubt. One of the great examples, we've already seen it as we've gone through, and we'll look if the Lord tarries and we move on into Chronicles. The situation with King Asa, who has this incredible victory over this Two million man Ethiopian army. And then he has a little trouble, a little bit of a civil war thing going on. And then he goes and asks the Syrians to come and help him. And that's when a prophet comes to him and says, you know, why don't you trust God? You trusted God with a big problem, but you didn't trust him with a little one. And it really, similar situation here, Obadiah. You know, he's been smuggling out bread and water from before the king, taking it from, from the king's table, effectively. He saved these prophets. Trusted God in that one, but this one, straight away, there's that human element. You know, and there's a lot of these examples in Scripture. We've got to learn to trust God, whether it's a big thing, whether it's a little thing. Just trust God. And Elijah kind of puts him at rest and puts him at peace. He says, Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself unto him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And it came to pass that when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubles Israel? They just love this. Isn't this just like the world today? It's this inverted reasoning. Elijah's going to give him a piece of his mind in a moment. But Isaiah 5, verse 20 and 21 says, Woe to them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Well, doesn't that speak of Ahab in this situation? You know, blaming Elijah. You're the one that stopped the rain. See, time actually has changed nothing. In all the years now through history from the time of Ahab and Elijah... We've got the same problems. You see, Christians are still held to be the perpetrators, aren't we? We're the ones who are the guilty ones. You know, right the way back to the first century, Nero blamed the Christians for the fire that destroyed Rome in AD 64. Today, Christians are blamed for brainwashing their children. And there's numerous articles we could cite that have been in the press and elsewhere. Because Christian parents, godly Christian parents, 
biblically aware Christian parents are teaching their children about biblical creation rather than teaching them, as the world puts it, the science of evolution. Of course, there is no science to support evolution. We've looked at this many times. And yet we're the ones who are wrong. We're the ones that are being dangerous. Christians, of course, are blamed for being intolerant. <laughs> well, isn't that funny? You know, let me ask you this. How many gay B&Bs have been targeted by Christians? I don't know of any. How many gay bakers have been taken to court for rejecting Christian values? Just think about this. We're the ones, apparently, that are intolerant. It's absolute nonsense. It's just as we see with Ahab blaming somebody else for what was his problem, his fault. In 1967, a medieval historian by the name of Lynn White published an article called The Historical Roots of Our Ecologic Crisis. You get this. This is just quoting. He says, White argued that Western Christianity is the most anthropocentric religion the world has seen. He concludes that the modern technological conquest of nature that has led to our environmental crisis has in large part been made possible by the dominance in the West of this Christian worldview. Christianity, therefore, bears a huge burden of guilt. We are. Christian's fault again. So we're the ones that are responsible for the problems with the environment, according to this individual. This is actually being studied at a number of universities in this country even now. Obama said, Don't forget, Christians did some awful things a thousand years ago. And since many Muslims still think it's the 10th century, we should cut them some slack. So really what he's saying is it's the Christians' fault. We started it all. We've caused the problems. Obama again said the future must not belong to those who slander the prophet of Islam. Okay. Really digging at Christians primarily there. Because people slander Christ all the time. And that's totally acceptable, of course, to the world. Rick Warren predicts that fundamentalism of all varieties will be one of the big enemies of the 21st century. In quotes he said, Muslim fundamentalism, Christian fundamentalism, Jewish fundamentalism, secular fundamentalism, they're all motivated by fear, fear of each other. Once again, if you're a fundamentalist Christian, you're part of the problem. You see, it's exactly the same as it was in the days of Elijah. This is a very interesting article I read. Um, this was actually in the Times, uh, the Times News uh, online newspaper. It was uh, entitled, Be Aware of the Dangers of Christianity. But actually, it was, it was better than I thought it was going to be. Let me just read this to you. 20 years ago, the New York Times ran a full-page ad for Columbia University. It advertised seven fields of study in which a person can get a Master's of Arts in Liberal Studies. American, Ancient, East Asian, Islamic, Jewish, Medieval, and South Asian studies. Richard John Niehaus spotted this ad and wrote an editorial about it asking, where is Christian studies? He pondered four possible reasons and then settled with this one. Nervousness is caused by the awareness that there are an awful lot of people who really believe in Christianity. The university is a cosmopolitan space where religious traditions can be subjected to critical examination, but are not to be taught as though they might be, well, you know, true. Even in religious studies departments, faculty members who are Hindus, Buddhists, and believers in mystical crystals can quite openly profess their faith. Muslims, and usually Jews can too, 
Nobody raises a question about their proselytizing. Not so with Christians. The fear is that Christianity might be taken altogether too seriously. The absence of Christian studies in the Columbia program, it turns out, is not an insult to Christianity. Those of the other faiths, however, might have reason to be offended. I think Niehaus was right. We see that his theory working itself out in universities everywhere, whose religious life groups are being told by administrators that proselytizing at an event cannot be done unless the people who are being proselytized have come to the event knowing that there will be an attempt to convert them. Just wondering, which religious groups are they concerned about? Clearly it's Christians. A man named Saul in the first century made it his aim to destroy the church, to put an end to the Christians proselytizing once and for all. Let me ask you something. Why was Saul persecuting the church? Was it because the church sang awesome songs, heard interesting talks, and got together to think about how to improve themselves and help others? No. Saul knew the church perhaps better than we did, and he knew that they were right, and that Jesus really was the Messiah, and that salvation comes not through works of righteousness, but by grace through faith. If those things, then he knew that his whole life was a pile of rubbish. That's why he wrote uh, the latter, after his uh, conversion to Christianity. I indeed count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. So this article concludes and says, Be aware of the dangers of Christianity. You might find that it is, well, you know, true. I thought it was quite an interesting article to find in a secular paper. But, you know, that is the problem. And this is the, the, the reality that Ahab's faced with, that they want to turn away from it because of the reality that actually deep down they have a conscience that's been placed there by God. And that conscience convicts them. That's why it's okay to preach and to try and convert people to any other religion. That's okay, that's fine. But the moment you start talking about Christianity, you start talking about Jesus Christ, the world becomes very offended. Elijah responds to Ahab. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and has followed Balaam. Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal, 450, and the prophets of the groves, 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. Now, Elijah, knowing what he's got to do, knowing that before the rain can come, the people's hearts have got to be turned back to the Lord. Because God has already stated in his word, that is what has to happen. And so now, Elijah's sending up this contest. And says, so this is one of me. But you get the 450 prophets of Baal. You get the 400 prophets of effectively Ashtaroth or Astarte. You see, the, the prophets of the groves, that's the, the female goddess that was worshipped there, Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth was worshipped by the ancient Canaanites and the neighbouring peoples, including the Philistines, and First Samuel 31 is a reference there. Um, the Israelites also worshipped Ashtaroth from the time of Joshua, even in Judges 2.13, that's mentioned. She's associated with the carvings that were made on the trees, and the worship often therefore took place in forested areas, under a tree or in a, an area marked by a, an Ashtaroth pole, and one of those is actually mentioned in 2 Kings 21, verse 7. Uh, Manasseh set one of those up. Now, she's also identified as being the moon goddess, which is just interesting in itself. Um, belongs to this family of gods, of which Baal also is part. Baal being the sun god, typically. 
Um, worship to her included various sexual immorality, prostitution, divination, fortune telling. And this is why the law of Moses speaks so firmly against these things and about Israel mustn't get involved in it. And of course, we're seeing here that's exactly what's happened. They have. And despite warnings from God, many of the Israelite leaders and the kings worshipped Ashtaroth. And several of Solomon's wives ended up uh, going down this route. And we've already uh, passed that back in First Kings 11. Uh, we find that uh, Ashtaroth and the goddess of the Sidonians uh, was worshipped there. So Jezebel will see also um, is uh, one here that's worshipping this false goddess. So this is the, the problem. Uh, Elijah is coming face to face with this immorality, this false worship that's in the land. And these two Kale camps. And it's interesting how the other religions can all find a way of working together. But they can't work with, with God. They don't work with Christianity. Elijah's got the same problem. So Elijah now challenges them to come to this meeting that he's arranging on top of Mount Carmel. Just so you can see where we're looking geographically, this is the southern kingdom, Judah, which for a long time in our study has been quiet. We've not seen what's going on there at the moment. But up north here, this is Samaria. This is where Ahab's capital is. Um, this is where it was, if you remember, we looked in our study. The capital of the kingdom was Terza, uh, and then it's removed by Ahab's father to this point here. And this then, Samaria, becomes the capital of the northern kingdom from this point on. Now, Elijah is taking them and challenging them to come all the way up to this point here, this ridge system that's here overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. This is where, where Mount Carmel is. And as, apparently, I've not actually had the opportunity to go here, but there's apparently wonderful views, not just of the Mediterranean across, but looking back over the land and looking back down across this area here, which is the Jezreel Valley, uh, the place where typically referred to as Armageddon, that uh, geographical location. But that's where Elijah is taking the people now. Just as you can see a view. Seemingly the place where this contest is going to take place is somewhere in this area here. The, the, the peak of the mountain is a little bit further up. And we'll see in the text that Elijah heads up there after this contest in a short while. Um, but this area where it's large enough to gather everybody together, calling everybody from the nation to come to this point. Typically it was a very fertile place. Um, which is why at this point you're coming, Elijah's taking everybody to the place that, that was recognized. In fact, uh, in um, Isaiah 32, verse 2, and it speaks of the splendor of Carmel. Um, in Song of Songs, uh, chapter 7, verse 5, it says, um, Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. So the idea of Carmel coming to this place where it was withering and dying was just a sign of God's judgment. Uh, and reference to that is Nahum chapter 1, verse 4 as well, if you want to. Take that for further study. So, to give you an idea of where we're going with this. So, verse 20 carries on. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto the people and said, How long will you halt between two opinions? How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. See, the people are being challenged because they hadn't totally rejected God, but they just added to the worship of God the worship of the other things as well. And that's such a danger for us because, you know, sometimes we don't reject God, but we allow other things in. Other things to take our heart, to take our, our time away from God. Other things that would stop us coming before God's word daily. And Elijah says, look, 
If those things really are of benefit and profitable to you, well then have them. But if God is who he said he is, if God is what your life should be all about, well then put those other things away. You can't have both. Either God is God or these other gods are God. And the people didn't answer a word. Then said Elijah unto the people, I even owe, I only remain a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now in this particular situation, right at this point, that is the case. Of course, we know that God had actually reserved another 7,000. Romans 11 and verse 4, we'll make mention of that and we'll see it also come out in the text in a short while here. That God had actually reserved 7,000 prophets that hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. And we've got another hundred, of course, that we've already heard Obadiah mention. Ahab's servant, who he'd hidden. Where they are at this point, we don't know. But right now, Elijah is standing there on his own. And it's him against these 450 prophets of Baal. Jezebel's crew, the uh, ones who worship Ashtaroth, seemingly are not present at this point. And so then Elijah says, Let them, therefore, give us two bullocks. Let them choose one bullock for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock and lay it on the wood and put no fire under. And call you on the name of your gods and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answers by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. And I was, yeah, okay, we agree to this. It's a good test. Let's see if, which one's the real God. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves, and dress it first, for you are many. Lots of you, and only one of me. And call on the name of your gods, but don't put any fire under it. So the idea is that they're going to set up this altar, they're going to put this bullock on the altar, and then they're going to call on the name of their god to call down fire to offer up this offering. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon so obviously this whole process has started at the beginning of the day they've got up there early in the morning and all morning they're there crying out and it gets to lunchtime and probably and I was just thinking if we could have got this done now we could be having a barbecue but no he's he says oh Baal hear us is what they're saying but there was no voice nor any that answered. And of course there won't be, because there's no God. And they leapt upon the altar which was made. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, a little bit louder. For he's a God, surely your God is a God, isn't he? Or maybe he's talking, maybe he's busy at the moment. Maybe he's pursuing, literally maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's gone away somewhere. Maybe he's asleep. You've got to wake him up. Well, just taunting them, really. You know, the gods of the, the nations are just but idols. They're, they're not gods at all. They have no power. We need not be afraid of them or frightened of them. They can't do anything. And Elijah, kind of having a bit of fun here. And you wonder whether or not God is stirring Elijah to ask these questions. And Elijah thinking, can I really say this, God? Can I, can I mock them in this way? But Elijah, knowing that he's not mocking anything that he needs to be fearful of. 
But no doubt they were getting very frustrated as Elijah was just having fun at their expense. And we read verse 28, and they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lances till the blood gushed out upon them. It's just incredible the lengths that people will go to in devotion to false gods. And when you look at the church, when you look at us, you know, people that follow after false religions are so devout sometimes. You know, you you look at some of the, the stories we have historically of some of the monks, even people like Martin Luther before his conversion. The things they went through, the things they put their bodies through, crawling for miles on their knees. You know, and you look at the devotion of even the likes of the Jehovah's Witnesses, what they do. And it's just like this situation. Just absolutely devoted, but to something that's not real. That's not true, that's not going to help them in any way. And then you look at us and you think, we've got the one true God. And where in our lives would other people see the devotion that you'd expect if we really do serve the true and living God. How far are we prepared to go? And it came to pass, when midday was past, that they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. Now, by the way, none of these things are accidental. This is all staged. Elijah has arranged this because he wants to get to the time of the evening sacrifice. So there was neither voice, nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. So they've, they've just given up, effectively, on calling on their God. They've tried so hard. No doubt, some of them now needed serious medical attention, and their God hasn't answered. And Elijah said unto all the people, Okay, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two measures of seed. So there's a reasonable trench around the outside of this altar that is established. And he put the word in order, and cut the bullock in pieces, and laid him on the word, and said, Fill four barrels with water, and pour it upon the burnt sacrifice, and on the wood. So, Elijah now, just doing what the Levitical priests would have been doing, and should have been doing, and maybe down in Jerusalem they were. But what should have been happening is, at the time of the evening sacrifice, an offering should have been brought. Twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. And now they get to the evening and Elijah is going to offer up effectively this sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. Every day they were to go through the same process. And offering up this burnt offering. Leviticus talks of the way that this bullock should be bought. They're going to sprinkle the blood round about. They shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. It talks about separating the parts, the head and the fat that is upon the wood. And so on. This offering would look hideous once it had been finished. Once it was all laid in place. It was all outside. Every, all the insides were on the outside. And it would have looked monstrous. 
And of course that speaks of Jesus Christ. That speaks of Jesus who in our place became sin for us. You see, what we're going to see in a minute, that the fire will fall, and it doesn't fall upon the prophets of Baal. It doesn't fall upon Ahab or the children of Israel. The fire falls on the innocent sacrifice. Just as Jesus took our sin. Just as Jesus was made sin for us. So Elijah then has water poured all over this and says, do it again. So again, they get water, they soak this dead bullock now all laid out there and all the wood and everything around it and this is do it again so now they get some more water I mean water's in short supply at this point of time as well but they then soak and we told the water ran ran about the altar and he filled the trench also with water I mean there's no way this is suddenly going to combust and it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice Again, this is the time that Elijah had been working to. Just as according to the law, the evening sacrifice should be offered up. That Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel. No doubt saying that not because just himself, but for those that were there. To remind them that the God that he was serving is the God that called Abraham called Isaac that led Israel let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word there you go 1 Kings 18 verse 36 at thy word you see none of this was Elijah just trying to do something just acting With his best intentions. Everything he's doing is according to God's word. Once again, how much faith did he need? Just as much as a grain of mustard seed. Doesn't need a lot of faith. Because it's not faith in faith. It's faith in God. God has said these things. God has already made these promises. All Elijah is doing is saying, God, you said you're going to do it. Now I ask you to do it. God has said to Elijah to come. There's going to be rain. Elijah knows that for that to happen, the hearts of the people have got to be turned back. And so he's there and he's asking them to put away everything that is not true. And of course, the challenge to us this morning, you know, we would, of course, sometimes be offended if we're told we're worshipping false gods. But in our hearts, are there still things there that God needs to have removed? You know, How long will we waver between two opinions? This morning, could you honestly say that you are sold out for God? That God is your all in all? Could you honestly say that you care nothing for the things of this world anymore? As Elijah said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If God is God, serve him. Verse 37 carries on. Hear me. O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, Jehovah God. When you get a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it's the four letters in the Hebrew of the unpronounceable name of God. And typically we would say Yahweh or Jehovah. But it's the name that God has revealed himself as. 
the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. See, notice, it's God's grace. It's God's grace that turned their heart back. You see, God was the one that engineered this, telling Elijah to go and tell Ahab, the rain's coming. Elijah immediately clocks and goes, therefore, we've got to bring the people's hearts back. There's got to be a sacrifice. There's got to be atonement for sin. God had initiated this because of his love for the people to bring them back to him. And Elijah, just a faithful man, just being obedient to God, not doing anything stunning from a human point of view, but just having faith in a very big God. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice. What must that have been like? As suddenly they're standing there and fire comes down from the sky, whether it was lightning or a a bowl of fire, whatever it was. There's very interesting conjecture around all those things that we maybe in another time we'll look at. But the Lord engineers and arranges this so that fire comes down from the sky. It lands, it hits right on this very, very spot at this very time. It consumes the burnt sacrifice, which you were supposed to do, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. It must have been quite terrifying for the people that were there to see this happening. But they were left in no doubt. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. And they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is the God. Notice what it says. The Lord, he, he is the God. All that had gone before, all of this foolish worship of these pagan deities that had come to nothing. It's been exposed. You know, there's course that there will be a day where all of those things will be exposed and every knee will bow before Jesus Christ and, and profess him to be Lord. But the joy for those that do that now, that recognize that he is the God. There is no other God. You know, and just that whole concept, that scene there as the people fall on their faces. You know, have you ever come to that place before God where you've got so sick of that way you've been living that you fall on your face before God in humility, not even really wanting to look up, just feeling so ashamed of the wasted opportunities, the things you've done, and yet realizing that the wrath of God didn't fall upon you, it fell upon that bullock, it fell upon that sin, sinless, pure offering. It fell upon Jesus. Verse 40 carries on. Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishron and slew them there. You know, we've got to cut away everything that would stop us worshipping God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, those things that have led us into idolatry. They've got to be killed off in our life. And whatever it takes, kill them off. Get rid of them. Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. Probably Ahab's listening and thinking, I can't hear anything at the moment. And you just wait. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah 
went up to the top of Carmel. So again, as I said earlier, that probably on that plateau level, not quite at the peak. Now Elijah goes to the top of Carmel and he casts himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees. Praying, Lord, send the rain. Knowing that now the rain can come because the hearts of the people have been turned back to God. And according to God's word, when the hearts of the people will be turned back, God will bring his blessing again. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And so seven times this thing repeats. Elijah, not doubting, I don't believe any of this. You know, the third, fourth, fifth time, the servant comes back, there's still nothing. Elijah says, there will be. So he puts his head down again and prays a bit more. Because it's not about him having enough faith. He knows that God has promised he will do this. So he's just going to keep praying and praying and praying and praying until God does it. You know, what about us? What about the things we pray for? What about revival? Well, the Lord says that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Well, that's a good basis for our prayers, isn't it? To be praying that the Lord would add to our numbers here. Let's pray that prayer, shall we? And let's read scripture and see what other prayers we can be praying based upon God's character, upon what God has revealed in his word. And it came to pass at the seventh time that he said, Behold, there rises a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. And he, Elijah, said, Go up and say to Ahab, Prepare thy chariot and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. And it came to pass that meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind. You know what it's like when the rain's about to come and suddenly, because of the, the air pressure and everything else, the wind starts howling around and you know it's about to rain. Well, that's what's happening here. The clouds are coming across. It's getting black everywhere. And there was great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. God now supernaturally empowering this man to carry on this ministry that he's called him to. But you know, it's all about God. It's about his word. And yes, we pray in faith. But we pray in faith because that faith is in God. And that's why these things happen. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you for this incredible portion of scripture. There are so many lessons for us to learn. And Father, we just pray this morning that if there is anything in our hearts that is an idol, if there's anything, Lord, that is competing with you then Lord this morning let us not waver between two opinions any longer but Lord let us lay aside the sin which so easily ensnares and now Lord from this moment as individuals as a body of believers here let us run with endurance with perseverance the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith so Lord help us in these things we pray Lord, help us to cut away, to kill off in our life anything that would keep us from you, from being wholly devoted to you. And Lord, impress these things upon our hearts. 
in the days ahead, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.